March 1st, 2007. This week we have... Hold, Lee- hold, hold, hold. What? I usually do the teasers. Dude, you weren't around all week. Caitlin and I did all the work all week long, and now you want to come in and just kind of put, like, the little icing on the cake and take all the fame and glory? Fine. Do the teaser. This week, we're going to get in-depth and technical on Access Manager with Ben Felstead and Lee Howarth. Right now on Novell Open Audio. Welcome to Novell Open Audio, the podcast that connects the Novell user community with what's going on inside and around the Novell universe. I'm your host, Ted Hager. And I'm Aaron Quill. I'm Kate Linyans. So you guys were out doing interviews without me this week? Uh, we were pretty much sitting around working when you were out screwing around. That's what you pretty well do every day anyway, isn't it, Ted? All right. I see how this show is going already. So you guys got this interview with Lee Howarth and Ben Felsted on... Access Manager. We covered Access Manager a while back, but it was more of a general overview. So this one goes a little deeper. Yeah, we get a chance to talk in depth on the SSL VPN that they've just added to the product, as well as just talking basic concepts on how you protect enterprise applications with Novell Access Manager. After the interview, we've got listener feedback coming up as well. We're going to read a few of the listener emails and comments that have been posted on our Open Audio website. So we'll hit that as well. But before we get into that stuff, Aaron and I were talking about something today, Caitlin. Really? Jeez, I can't imagine that. <laughs> Don't be a wiseacre. The thing that we were talking about was Aaron's been using a different package manager on OpenSUSE. Um, tell us about it, Aaron. This comes about because I'm prepping for a brain share session that we're doing on running OpenSUSE 10.2 and Myth TV together. And in order to build Myth TV, you know, you've got to grab these packages from all over the planet. And somebody pointed me to this new package manager called Smart. And Smart's really cool. What it does is it goes out and it adds a whole bunch of different repositories for you, things like Pac-Man, things like uh, Guru, uh, the actual official SUSE sites. A lot of the package repositories that you'll find out there on OpenSUSE's additional YAST repositories. Right, but it adds those automatically so you don't have to manually add those, and then it does a really good job of fixing dependencies. So you know when you go add a package and it says, you know, you also need all these different libraries and maybe it's having trouble finding Finding this one particular uh, library, Smart is really good at resolving those issues. One, it's great at just scouring the internet trying to find those uh, missing libraries. The other thing is it's real good at making intelligent decisions to say, if it can't find that library, can it get by without it? So I've been using it kind of in combination with the normal YAST method of installing things, and it's really just solved so many dependency problems that I've had. Yeah, I remember back when we interviewed Martin Lasarche on uh, 10.2's release, we talked to him a lot about the package manager included in 10.2, the default one, which is the Zenworks uh, pa- software updater, I guess it's called. And he actually mentioned to us that that was getting way better and things, but a lot of people commented in. They get rid of that and they put smart instead, or they use them in conjunction with each other so that they have both. And so that's what you're doing on OpenSUSE? Yeah, I'm actually using both. What I do is I, I let Yast point to the official repositories, to just pretty much, you know, the SUSE sites, the ATI sites, so I get the updated driver for my video card. 
And that's about it. You could point smart to those things as well, right? Actually, smart automatically points to those as well. But what I do then is I let Yast handle the automatic security updates that I automatically get from Novell. And like I said, anything official. Then when I need something that's not officially available and I've got to grab it from, you know, I'd normally be grabbing it from a Pac-Man mirror or from Guru or something like that. That's where I use smart. Okay. And what about caveats with smart? Will, not really a caveat with Smart itself, just kind of a caveat with the whole process, is licensing. Things get real weird because you're grabbing stuff from Pac-Man, from Guru, from Some of these sites have things like the Lame Encoder or those kind of things, right? Oh, yeah. And that's Lame Encoders for MP3s. And that, of course, is intellectual property that is protected in some countries, like the United States, where use of it is actually going to get gray area. So does it warn you or anything when you start getting these kind of packages? No, there's really no warnings. And that's really why I separate the two. Why I know when I go into YAS, I'm only pulling from those official sources. And I can be clear that, you know, everything there is I'm going to be licensed for or is going to be open source software that I'm able to consume. Caitlin, what do you got? Do you look like you want to say something? I just want to make sure that people are aware that Aaron is doing this on OpenSUSE. So from a support perspective with SUSE Linux Enterprise, if you go out and you grab open source packages and you put them on your box, you're welcome to do that. And you're basically on your own at that point. We will try and troubleshoot things and we'll do our best. But if we find that it's the open source product that's causing a problem or the interaction between the operating system, you'll have to sort of figure it out yourself. Novell's got a support get out of jail free card on that one. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> okay. So these are community repositories. If somebody adds community repository to their SLED or SLES, Susan Linux Enterprise boxes, that's where they can get themselves into some kind of gray area on support, then you're saying? Yeah, repository, or if they've just gone and gotten code from the community, open source code, and they've put it on there that we haven't natively shipped with the operating systems. Will support still actually try to support we'll, them? Oh, definitely. We'll give it a go. But that that doesn't mean that necessarily we'll see it all the way to conclusion. We do have well, you know, if we if we come to the point where we determine that it's actually the open source code that's having a problem, or it's the interaction between the open source code and the operating system, then you're kind of on your own. That's that point between the open source code that Novell manages ourselves versus the code that some is not a Novell managed piece of code. Like if you were to install Apache from a community repository and it's a newer version than what came in SUSE Linux Enterprise, that's where it gets Correct. into a change. Okay. Correct. So what we should probably do is let's go ahead and we'll put posts up as far as there's a great uh, on the Swiki, very detailed instructions to get uh, Smart up and running on whichever version of SUSE you're running, as well as some links to add some of those additional mirror sites. Okay. So we'll link to that from the show notes. People can check it out from there. And with that... Shall we uh, find out what you guys did with this Novell Access Manager interview? I reckon we probably should. Today in the studio, we have Lee Howarth back. Lee, how are you? Really good, thank you. And Lee, could you remind us again who you are? I am the Product Manager for Novell Access Manager. And we also have uh, Ben Felstead joining us for his first time. Ben, hi. Hi. And Ben, what do you do for us? I am the integration engineer for the Novell Access Manager product. What does integration engineer mean? Integration engineer means I'm the first customer that sees the product before the testers get it or anybody else gets it. 
Oh, cool. And so I actually pull it all together, work it out. I'm the first one to install it and get to see all of the new UI. Caitlin and I have asked you in the studio today to talk about securing your applications with Access Manager. Lee, if you could start out, just kind of give us an overview of what you mean by securing applications. So securing applications with Novell Access Manager, we basically look at it as two main types of applications. We've got the standard HTTP-based applications, uh, this is what has been your typical access management-based product. You know, it's provided secure access to these web applications. But we've also included an integrated SSL VPN service as well that will allow you to secure access to uh, what we term as enterprise applications or non HTTP-based services. Okay, well, let's start out talking about these HTTP services. Mm-hmm. So how would I go about securing them, and what benefit does it really bring to me? Well, if you look at the types of things that you need to do to a web server to secure it, you've got all sorts of things like you need to authenticate the user, you need to have some kind of policy to determine what the user can see. You often have things like encryption, if, if the content needs to be secure as it goes over the network. And there's a number of different ways to secure access to the, those applications. You know, Novell takes the approach that if we can remove, first of all, direct access to the web server, then we're immediately going to make it more secure than it already is. But then what we do is we provide um, authentication mechanisms, authorization, uh, as in policy decisions, uh, to determine, based on the user's role once they've authenticated, whether they can actually even see uh, the information. And configuring those access to those what we call as protected resources is something that is, is managed and configured on the access gateway. Okay, so let's stop for a minute. So I can do, of course, straight HTTPS access to my web servers directly from a client. Mm-hmm. But as you were describing, the problem is... I've got to go to each one of those individual web servers and configure them, and it's all different based on which web server I'm running, right? So the idea then is to kind of, instead of going to those individual points, to bring it back to one central place where I can do all my security for those web servers? Yeah, we take the view of you build a security infrastructure, you know, and then you add the applications to that security infrastructure it makes it far more simple to configure and less complex to manage the secure environments. It also gets back to something that we always do here at Novell, which is let the person do their job. Wh- yeah. What I mean by that is the guy who's managing or building that web server is really worried about that web server and the content in that web server. Let security professionals worry about security, making sure that you know it's single username, single password throughout the whole system. Yeah, and you can also extend that to the web server. You know, so let the web server do what it was designed to do, which is really distribute content. Right. You know, let something else handle the security. Okay, so it allows us then to pull all of these securities, and you mentioned policies back to one central location. What type of policies? Well, this is where I wanted to get Ben involved because obviously he configures this on a day-to-day basis and he can go into a little bit more detail of how you would configure what we call a protected resource. So a protected resource is nothing more than a directory or a set of directories on the server that you want to enable some type of authentication or some kind of policy to. Now, the types of policies can be anything from an access control policy that basically says whether or not the user can get to a certain resource based on the time of day, the day of the week, the LDAP attribute that he has, the group that he's in, or that type of thing. Or it can be something specific to the back-end web server, like the way that the back-end web server is by default configured to authenticate the user, 
such as through a form or through a um, basic authentication. You can set up policies that allow this type of authentication to happen through this access gateway. So the access gateway kind of pre-stuffs that form that would normally come up for the user to use for authentication? Yes, it can pre-stuff that form and allow for single sign-on to things like group-wise mail. Okay. Web access type of thing. The normal process of, of configuring this is that, you know, through our administration tools, the first thing really what you're going to do is to configure the reverse proxy side, which is really the listening address on the access gateway. And then from that point forward, you configure the DNS names in terms of what the access gateway is going to listen for. You know, so every time you type in a URL on a browser, what actually happens is it sends what's called a host header through, and the access gateway is looking for that specific host header to identify then which IP address of the web server it's going to send the request to. Okay. You know, and then you go in and then configure all of these policies for that particular web server or set of web servers, because obviously for fault tolerance and load balancing reasons, I might have more than one web server configured. So the client makes a request to the web server. You actually have access managers sitting in between taking a look at those packets. He's looking at a packet that says to authenticate to a web server or access a web server, looking at that and seeing if that's within policy, right? Yeah, so he's receiving a request from the user, and then it will check. So this is the access gateway is seeing the request from the user. It will then check the policy against the particular URL. The policies determine what type of authentication is required, what type of then role is required to access that URL. Following an authentication, if the role, as in the user, doesn't have the correct role to access the information, then the web server never even receives a request. Okay, it just drops it right there. Exactly, yeah. Otherwise, if the request is authorized, did I hear you mention that it can actually make some intelligent decisions as far as which web server it's going to send that request to? Not only the web server, but then also the specific URLs. Okay. You know, so it and it will it actually load balance between web servers as well. And if a web server goes down, you know, Access Manager is able to determine that that web server is down, stop sending requests to it, redirect the request to a, another web server in its list, but then periodically retry to see if that web server is back up. How does it tell if things are down? Is there an agent on it, or is it doing things like through SNMP and It's basically and just doing, if it doesn't receive a response, I believe, if I'm right, it's like three times we do a quick check to get the, uh, the request through. If we don't receive a response on that third try, we say it's down, go to the next web server. Okay. Yeah. And then... Um, so the user has been authenticated, uh, the policies has been checked to determine if it has roles, but then again, based on that URL, it will say, okay, I need to provide a single sign-on for this user. Okay. You know, and then the policies, again, determine whether or not it's going to provide a header-based single sign-on or whether, as Ben was just talking about, it will provide a form-based authentication. And how does it handle my username and password? Because assuming that my username and password for that specific web service or web server that I'm going to are different than the username and password I use to authenticate to the Access Manager box. So there's a number of different ways, and Ben, chime in here if you want to, but there's a number of different ways that you could do that. By default, it makes it a lot easier if it is the same username and password, obviously, because I can just inject the name and password that I use to log in to Access Manager into the authentication headers. It's, it's called identity injection is the feature that allows this. I can actually go and grab any other credential I want to out of LDAP as well as out of Secret Store. And Secret Store is this additional encryption capability that eDirectory has. 
you know, so I can go and grab any set of credentials I want and inject those as user credentials to the backend web server. Okay, so you could grab a totally encrypted username and password out of my identity, out of eDirectory, and shove that in the request so that I get single sign-on and I'm never prompted for a username or password. Exactly. Very cool. You know, we talked about how you configure the reverse proxy, the listening address. You then configure the DNS names uh, of what you're listening for based on the host header. You know, one of the, the other reasons that we do that is that you might actually have multiple web servers with different DNS names that are all being serviced by the same IP address and the same SSL certificate. You know, oh, cool. And so we would see a www.novell.com or a support.novell.com developer.novell.com. Each would have a different host header, you know, but they would be going to the same IP address on the access gateway, and we'd know by that host header which web server to send it to. And which cert and the whole thing. Exactly. Um, now, you mentioned reverse proxy. Is that reverse proxy caching as well? It is. Oh, yeah. very cool. Yeah. So can you give everyone just a quick overview of what reverse proxy caching is? Sure. Well, a lot of people know what a caching proxy is or a forward proxy. You know, you, you often see on your browser the ability to configure a, a proxy gateway, which would then send all of the requests to that proxy first of all, and then get out onto the Internet. Now, there are a number of reasons why you would do that. Typically, it is for caching reasons to speed up, but it's also for security, you know, just so you can do things like content filtering. You could allow certain URLs to be requested on the Internet, deny others. A reverse proxy is really where you don't have the ability from a browser to configure that particular proxy. So it's it needs to be something that is in the flow, meaning that when you type in a URL, the destination of that URL needs to be the access gateway. So it needs to be the reverse proxy. Okay, and we then have the same kind of caching capabilities that we you see in forward proxies, where if content has been requested previously, you know, we can actually pull it out of the cache on the access gateway and get it to the user far quicker. And reverse proxies also have um, a slightly different way of requesting information from the web servers. It's, it's much more of a, of a burst in terms of getting all the data it can, where browsers tend to say, give me this bit of information, give me this bit of information, and keep checking it. You know? Right, so we get to deal with large TCP windows and exactly. cool things like that. Yeah. So it really does increase the overall performance of the system. And we've had plenty of customers that have come back to us and said, we've been able to reduce the number of web servers that were required to meet the needs of this service. So it, it's a really powerful solution. So Ben, can you tell us a little bit more about how we secure access to enterprise applications? So that's done a little bit differently, actually quite a bit differently, than the HTTP method that we're using. We actually have within the Novell Access Manager portion a SSL VPN portion of it. Now what this SSL VPN portion of it is, is it's another box on the network that's configured to be able to accept requests and it's kind of hidden behind the access gateway, but it accepts requests from the browser. It is entirely clientless, so the user gets exactly the software he needs to be able to access this SSL VPN uh, on the fly when he hits a certain protected resource on the access gateway. This allows him to basically create an SSL tunnel between his browser and the SSL VPN server to be able to access these non-HTTP applications on the back end. So from the SSL VPN server to the, the application that's running potentially out of the box, is that an SSL connection to that one as well? It isn't per se. It could be, but it isn't per se, because that's going to be whatever the user usually connected to it with. So if the user usually uses oh, okay. SSH to get to the back end service and he is outside the firewall now, 
he will then connect to the SSL VPN server that will secure the channel between the his machine and the SSL VPN and allow him to do the SSL things to the protected network that he needed to do. So then it's similar to a standard VPN where now my client, it's as if it's behind the firewall, but I'm talking about a web browser, right? I mean, I, I don't have OS-level VPN access inside the firewall, correct? Yeah, I mean, well, the browser is what's required to initially authenticate to the service, and then we deliver a client. So there is a, a small oh, okay. client that is delivered, but it's delivered in the form of a, of a Java applet or a, an ActiveX control. Okay, so I guess my point is, once I've got this uh, SSL VPN established, can I do OS side calls on my desktop, like a Samba mount of a server that's sitting on the other side of the firewall? So... When you look at things like the SMB type access or accessing netware type file and print services, that's actually something that we will be supporting in the SP1 version of the SSL VPN client. Okay. Well, let's just be real clear then. What exactly do I get the capability of with this first version? So what you get with this first version is you've got a anything that calls into the WinSock layer, uh, so it installs itself as an LSP. Okay. The ActiveX control or the Java applet downloads the this LSP code onto the browser itself in the case of Windows. On the Linux side, it uses the Sockspace client, so it actually intercepts the packets as it's going down to the wire itself and redirects them based on a policy to the uh, SSL VPN server. So does that mean today I'm limited to applications that take advantage of SOCs? Yes. Well, well it's, it's what we say is basically any TCP or UDP-based application, you know, and, and then really what it was about was that the first release, the requirements that I gave for engineering was that the user must not require any kind of power user administrative user rights or kind of root privileges on Linux. Okay. Or, and, and administrator rights, on obviously, on Windows. So we created this client that, that looked at any TCP, UDP-based application. But there were certain things like you mentioned the SMB and, and the NCP type of, of access that they're not standard TCP and UDP applications. SMB's not standard? I'm shocked. Believe it or not. <laughs> and so what we've done is that we've slightly re-architected the client um, and it's it's kind of a hybrid client now, meaning that if the user doesn't have the rights that they require on the workstation, then they would still be limited to that level of access, that TCP, UDP, standard ap application access. But what we've done now is that we've provided the ability to prompt the user so that if they do know um, a power user or, or if they are a power user, they, they actually won't be prompted, but if they're, if they're not and they know the administrator password or the root password, they can type that in, which will then install the kind of higher-level client, you know, and then allow access to all of these additional services. Okay. You know, so, and then the difference there is that we can actually leave a tiny piece of that client if you wanted to. You know, you obviously have the ability to clear out the client completely, but if it's obviously your laptop or it's a home machine or something like that, you might just want to leave that tiny bit of a client there so that you don't need to actually put in that password ever again to get access to all of these services. Sure. What, what type of clients are you guys supporting? We support uh, Linux clients, Windows, and Mac. What, what about browsers? Uh, browsers, uh, it's IE, obviously, on Microsoft, okay. uh, as well as Firefox on, on all of those platforms. Cool. The Java Applet client, which is the one that Firefox will launch, is it, just a standard Java Applet. So 
there's a good chance it's going to work on really any browsers, but these are the ones that we support in terms of the ones that we test internally. And so now we've kind of covered the client side. Mm -hmm. uh, let's talk about the server just a little bit. So I've got the that client automatically installed. On the server side, I, I'm assuming since it's coming from you guys in the identity group, heavily policy-driven? Exactly. Yeah, and Ben, if, it's probably the best to kind of go through uh, the types of configuration here because the one thing I do want to discuss as well, Ben mentioned the fact that there is um, a protected resource for the SSL VPN server. And there's obviously a little bit of work that's required there so that the access gateway can pass some information to the SSL VPN server so it knows exactly who you are to then establish a client session. We've obviously got that, and then we've got role-based policies that will determine what back-end applications you as a user can access. You know, so, Ben, if you can go through that, would be great. So, as Lee was saying, is in order for the SSL VPN to be useful, you need an access gateway in front of it because the access gateway will provide the credentials that are needed and as well as the roles that are needed to the SSL VPN server to allow the user to connect all the way through. The SSL VPN server is basically just a SLES 9 box with uh, two network cards in it, one to the public side and one to the private side. What the access gateway then does is it um, serves up these uh, servlets that are what the user actually sees when he logs in. It also serves down the client portion of it, taking some of the load off of the um, SSL VPN server because it's a caching app to allow the um, user to get in there quickly and quietly. What this requires is it requires a path-based service defined on the access gateway itself, which is kind of... What do you mean by path-based service? I'm not familiar with that term. There are a few different ways to set up a reverse proxy in order to allow access to a back-end web server. The first way is where you've got fairly transparent, so you just stick it in between the client and the web server. So you've configured it to say anything from the host name www.novell.com goes straight through to this address. However, a path-based means that anything for www.novell.com forward slash beta doesn't go back to this primary service. It actually files off to this other server. Okay. So you can actually set up different paths. So slash beta would go to server one, whereas regular would go to server two, and slash documentation would go off to server three. And so you can have uh, one URL servicing three different uh, web servers. Okay. And so you have to set up the SSL VPN as one of these path-based services. So in order to use the SSL VPN, you have to set it up as a path-based service. The other thing the SSL VPN needs is it needs some information about you. And the way that we've decided to pass the information between the access gateway and the SSL VPN is through a custom header. Well, that's kind of hard to set up. So what we've actually done is we've taken the next step for you and created this little wizard that allows you to create a default SSL VPN identity injection policy that allows the access gateway to inject the information that the SSL VPN needs without you having to do too much work on it. Oh, cool. So it's fairly easy. So it's fairly easy to set up. Yeah. And here's the thing as well is that not only is injecting information about user user in terms of who you are, but it's also then passing the role information. And so these are the roles that have been generated based on your authentication. Because we want to make sure, obviously, with an, an SSL VPN, it's not just about allowing access to the entire network that you often see with a VPN server. You know, we, we want to allow access to specific application servers even based on that user's role. Oh, so when I come through this thing, it's not like just an open VPN connection that gives me access to everything. It really is limited based on policy then? 
Correct. You can set up uh, individual policies to say down to the IP address and even the port or the service that's running on the machine that you want them to have access to or not, the user will log in and get the role. The SSL VPN server will then evaluate that role, and based on a role policy that you set up, you can say allow or deny encryption access to this back-end web server or this back-end service. So that's cool that I've got a browser-based SSL VPN, but it brings up a pretty big security concern. Now I'm using something like IE, and hitting your internal website, is there anything that I can do to secure that and make sure that you know I'm not going to have problems with viruses or anything coming in through that? So, yeah, the one thing that you can do is you can set up a uh, client integrity check policy that basically says when the user connects to the SSL VPN, it runs a little piece of code on the machine and checks for uh, registry entries for virus scanner or firewall settings and things like that, it can check for the presence of certain strings within the registry and allow uh, or deny based on whether it finds those strings or not. Cool. So like at at Novell, we have obviously a corporate-approved virus scan that runs on all of our machines. So you could check to make sure that that machine physically had you know, that application, that virus scan installed before it allowed you to connect. Correct. Yeah, oh, cool. We can check that the service is obviously running right. as well. Oh, yeah. It's obviously <laughs> important. Uh, and we can actually keep checking as well. So if for some reason they, they turn off a firewall, they turn off the virus scanner, you know, the, the client uh, will keep checking periodically to see if that service that it requires as part of its client integrity check policy is still active. If it's not, then it will obviously disconnect. So with BrainShare only a couple of weeks away, have we got any plans for this in the lab, or how can people come and see this while they're at BrainShare? We definitely have some plans for the lab. I mean, we uh, we want to be showing the SP1 code, you know, so all of these new capabilities that we mentioned with, with the SSL VPN, we'll be showing that. We, we're also going to be showing some of the new technologies that we're creating within this product line. Some of those pieces are to work with um, Microsoft InfoCard, okay. or Windows Card Space, as they now call it. You know, this is a, a, a new standard for authenticating via a browser, and we're also going to be showing that at BrainShare as well. Um, how about sessions on this? Do you have any technical sessions? I, I know you've got some that cover Access Manager. Mm-hmm. Do you also have sessions that specifically cover the SSL VPN, or are they mixed in? They're kind of mixed in. You know, we try to go from the standard introduction session to have real-world type of implementations, what some of our consultants have done out in the field as they've been deploying this with customers. And then we get into the types of install and configuration sessions, troubleshooting sessions. Uh, so some definitely some good technical sessions on Novalactus Manager branch here. Okay. And how about availability of this code? You mentioned that a lot of this uh, is in SP1. Are you currently in beta of SP1? Not quite, but... Everything that we've talked about beyond those new capabilities of the SSL VPN is available today. Okay. You know, and you can download it as, as an evaluation if you want to. Uh, the evaluation uh, is time-bombed. I believe the date that we currently have set is, is around the September time. Okay. You know, so it's, it should give you enough time to test it. And, but yeah, everything that we've talked about beyond those new features is in the shipping code. And when are you expecting SP1 to ship? Is that like a spring-summer release? SP1 is going to be around the April time frame. Okay, great. Well, we look forward to seeing that at BrainShare, and uh, thanks a lot for swinging by the studio, guys. Thank you. Thank you. All right, guys, nice work. Um, is it warm in here? Does it feel like somebody might not be a podcaster much longer? Um, let's get into listener feedback. 
Caitlin, what do you got? I have something from Moosey Log. I'm guessing he's a Canuck. He has to be a Canuck with a name like that. Uh, anyway. Actually, Moosey's out of Amsterdam. I spent, really? uh, yeah, I chatted with him quite a bit this weekend on. Uh, Is he a Canuck in Amsterdam? Uh, no, I believe he's Dutch and living in Amsterdam. I know huh, that's kind of weird, that. but yeah. yeah. Hmm. Moosey. Why Moosey? We have no idea. But he's a Myth TV guy, right? Yes, he is. In fact, he did an awful lot of the Myth TV SUSE 10.2 stuff. On OpenSUSE Wiki? Yep. Cool. Uh, no, it's actually on the Myth TV Wiki. Really? Yep. Wow, that's awesome. Love to get that out there. So uh, what do you ask again? Moosey wants to know what the people that we interview look like. Well, we do too. on radio you can't see them no um we've actually posted on a couple of our posts out there some of the pictures like i think we put jason williams face up there finally because many people asked what does this limey guy look like and so we put it on there actually can we tell honestly what happened yeah we had every intention of doing this we even had a camera uh set aside so that we were going to take people's uh, photos Somebody stole the camera out of the studio. Somebody stole the Novell Open Audio digital camera. It disappeared. Yeah. All the sound equipment, all these cool mics and everything, and they steal the digital camera. So is the camera any good? How would we know? We haven't used it. (laughs) Oh, so somebody got away with like a brand new camera? It was in the box, brand new. I got it from the BrainShare team. They had it like as a spiff thing that they from last year. But it was a nice camera. It was like a five megapixel little just point and shoot camera, but... Yeah, huh. and it's gone. So we didn't do a whole lot of that. I'm bringing in a camera now, now that my BlackBerry has a little camera as well. That's how we took a picture of Jason Williams to post. And I think we took a picture of Martin Buckley for that interview, but I don't know if we posted his picture. But, Moosey, we indeed do intend to do things, but there's a lot of intentions around Novell Open Audio, and you're dealing with people with attention deficit disorder. Well, me. And I don't get some of these things done on time, and Aaron's no help at all. <laughs> Speaking of Aaron, what do you got this time, Aaron? Well, actually, we got a couple comments, uh, probably the the most detailed uh, was from Jack Bunce, and it's about people having problems when they go to grab the AUG file, specifically from Conqueror in Linux, and they're having problems when they hit the redirector. Oh, yeah, because if you're a KDE guy, then your default browser is probably Conqueror out of the box, and that means that you're dealing with a browser that may not understand redirects quite well. It may not handle them. And here's the deal, everybody who's wondered, why do we have a redirect inside of our URL? This is actually, we use a tracking service called PodTrack to get statistics on how many people download the show. That way, when you know people go, why are you guys doing this podcast? We can actually justify it to upper management and say, look, we've had a thousand downloads of this one episode. And that helps us out quite a bit. But the redirects don't get handled by all different clients out there. Well, Conqueror is one of the things we found. The other one was Rhythmbox. That one also was having a problem. I think that one got bugzilla and everything went through. So that's supposed to get fixed. But if you have a problem with the redirects, take the URL and just carve it right out of there and download. You can do it that way. Firefox and Opera both work great. According to uh, Jack's report on that. As well as my laptop. Okay, well, great. So, Jack, we owe you a shirt for uh, sending that in. Thanks for bringing up the subject with us. I actually have one last one here, and it's just a really short one. A listener named Tim Poth actually picked up what we were talking, I think, about uh, Linux, 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 all those different pronunciations, if you remember, Caitlin. Yes, I do. Which way do you pronounce it? Linux. All right. Aaron? It's Linux. Okay. Well, Tim actually posted to our Novell Open Audio website the link to Linus actually pronouncing this. So Linus Torvalds and him saying how. And we'll find that we're slightly wrong because we have this uh, small I sound, the I, which doesn't even work in most languages. And sure enough, Linus pronounces it Linux. 
So that's how Linux is pronounced. See, you know, I guess I, mine comes from the German pronunciation a little bit more, and I would be more likely to say Linux. Linux. Yeah, which is less of the I, which is probably a little cl- closer, but it's sixes, isn't it? Yeah, I guess so. Well, with that, that's pretty much it for listener feedback this time around. If you want to give us feedback, you can send us email to openaudio at novell.com. You can also post comments on any one of our episodes, including our upcoming interviews. We've recently stocked up a whole bunch of upcoming interviews on the website. You just click one of the links to read what it's going to be about, and you can post comments there that will become our tough questions for that interview. And finally, you can rate any episode that we post, including this one, by going to novell.com forward slash openaudio. And coming up next week, we're going to look at dynamic storage technologies in depth, another interview that Caitlin and Aaron did. And that one is on what we previously covered called Shadow Volumes with Jason Williams. We're going to get more in depth on it. And Jason is coming back with one of the lead engineers on that. So check that one out. Remember that Novell Open Audio is brought to you by your friends at Novell Users International in conjunction with Novell Incorporated. Most of the things that we cover on the show are in one way or another driven by listener interests. So send us an email or get on the website and leave us a comment, and we'd be happy to consider anything that you want to hear on the show. And as we get more and more requests for it, we put those things on. That's it for this time. We'll see you next time. <laughs>